This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Whether class or race is the more important factor in modern politics is a question right at the heart of recent history's most contentious debates. Among groups who should readily find common ground, there is little agreement. To escape this deadlock, Assad Hader turns to the rich legacies of the black freedom struggle. Drawing on the words and deeds of black revolutionary theorists, he argues that identity politics, as we have come to know it, is not synonymous with anti-racism, but instead amounts to the neutralization of its movements. It marks a retreat from the crucial passage of identity to solidarity, and from individual recognition to the collective struggle against an oppressive social structure. Weaving together autobiographical reflection, historical analysis, and theoretical exegesis, mistaken identity is a passionate call for a new practice of politics beyond colorblind chauvinism and the ideology of race. And to make this add into a bit of an advertorial, I'd like to point out that I just finished the book. It's really stellar, and I'll be interviewing Assad shortly. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Americans are profoundly unwell. Suicide rates have skyrocketed, as, of course, have overdose deaths. Sure, there's an outpouring of public sympathy after a beloved celebrity like Anthony Bourdain ends his life. But the very language we use to talk about mental health and drug addiction is stigmatizing precisely because it is individualizing. The conventional wisdom is that these are people with problems. But what if it's the capitalist system that's entirely insane? The insanity of that system is the topic of David Harvey's latest book, Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason, from Oxford University Press. The book is a primer on capital, all three volumes, mind you, from a scholar who has taught these pivotal socialist texts to millions in person and online. Before we get rolling, I want to point out that you'll notice that David sounds like he's sitting in a studio with me. That's because we're spending the donations that you've made at patreon.com on improving the audio quality of the show. We paid a radio engineer to do what's called a tape sync. What that means is that while I was in my studio in Providence, David was in New York, and the engineer was sitting there with him recording with a mic. The result is that it sounds entirely better than Skype or a phone line. We want to do tape syncs with more shows, but it costs money. So please make a donation at patreon.com slash the dig so we can spend your money on making this show more pleasant to listen to. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and, and one last thing on that topic of stigmatizing people with mental or behavioral health issues. The governor of my state, Rhode Island, has indicated that she will sign a horrible piece of legislation 
that will make it easier for prosecutors to charge purported drug dealers with homicide in cases where someone fatally overdoses. The overdose crisis is hitting Rhode Island really hard, but the bill that Governor Gina Raimondo, a Democrat, is looking to sign will only destroy more lives and quite possibly lead to more deaths. This is law and order political theater, and it's playing with the lives of the most vulnerable people in my state. And so I'm sharing a call to action from the harm reduction group Protect Families First. Please call Governor Raimondo and tell her that more incarceration can't be the solution to the opioid crisis and to please veto Kristen's law. You can call Governor Raimondo at 401-222-2080. That's 401-222-2080. Okay, without further delay, here's David Harvey, a professor of anthropology at the City University of New York Graduate School and the author of many books, including The Enigma of Capital and A Brief History of Neoliberalism. David Harvey, welcome to The Dig. Well, thank you. You've been teaching capital for quite a long time, and I'd like to set the table for this interview by asking you to lay out a brief overview of what each of the three lengthy volumes is about so that listeners have a guide to the rest of our discussion. Well, this is one of the things I've been concerned with uh, in trying to teach Marx because uh, there's a wood for the trees problem. Uh, Marx is uh, very much into detail, and it's sometimes hard to get a sense of uh, exactly uh, what the whole conception of capital is about, and that's what I'm trying to communicate these days. And really, it's simply that uh, the capitalist starts the day with a certain amount of money, uh, takes the money into the marketplace and buys some commodities like a means of production and labor power and puts them to work in a, in a labor process that produces a new commodity, and then that new commodity is sold for money uh, plus a profit. Uh, then the profit is redistributed in various ways in the form of... Uh, uh, rents and interest and all this kind of stuff, and then it circulates back into uh, that money which starts the production cycle again. So it's a circulation process that goes on, and the three volumes of capital deal with different aspects of that circulation process. The first volume deals with the, the, the process of production. Uh, the second volume is really dealing with circulation and what we call realization, that is the the way in which the commodity becomes converted back into money. And the third volume deals with distribution, which is uh, how much of it goes to the landlord, how much of it goes to the financier, how much of it goes to the, the merchant and, uh, and the like, uh, before it is all turned around and sent back into the circulation process. So the three volumes of capital occupy different parts of this circulation process. And... Uh, that's what I try to teach so that people understand the relationships between the three volumes of capital and don't get lost entirely in, in volume one or volume two or volume three or even parts of those volumes. That leads me into my, my next question, which is that you, you differ with other Marx scholars in certain ways, and I'm, I'm nowhere near of enough of a nowhere near enough of a Marxologist to have a good handle on all of the debates, but one major difference, if I have it right, is that you pay a lot of attention to volumes two and and three of Capital in addition to volume one, 
um, while a lot of Marx scholars mostly find volume one exclusively to be of interest. Tell me about why you argue that all three volumes are important and where you part with other scholars. Well, I think they're important because this is what Marx says. I mean, he, in volume one, he kind of says, in vo, you know, he says basically in volume one, I deal with this. In volume two, I deal with that. And in volume three, I deal with something else. And he says that many times. And it's, so it's clear that in Marx's mind, uh, he had an idea of the totality of uh, the circulation of capital and that uh, his plan was to sort of uh, break it down into these three component parts in the three volumes. So I just following what Marx says he's doing. Um, now, the problem, of course, is that volumes two and three were never completed. And so we're dealing with uh, sort of uh, manuscripts and things, and, uh, and it's not as satisfactory as, as volume one. And the other problem is that Volume 1, in many ways, is, I think, a literary masterpiece. It's full of all kinds of uh, wonderful literary illusions and, and the like, whereas Volumes 2 and 3 are more technical and, and uh, harder, harder to follow. So I can understand why, if people want to read Marx with a certain sense of joy and fun, that they would stick with Volume 1. Uh, but uh, I'm kind of going and saying, well, no, look, if you really want to understand what his conception of capital is, then you can't understand it just as being about production. It's about circulation, it's about getting it to market and selling it, and then it's about distributing the profits in various ways. So I just, I'm just following what Marx, uh, Marx said he was doing. In terms of Volume 3, it's important one reason that it's important, if I read you correctly, is that we needed to understand this dynamic of constant expansion that drives capitalism, what you call a bad infinity, citing this really excellent phrase from Hegel. Well, explain what this bad infinity is. Well, actually, you get this bad infinity in volume one, which is that uh, the system has to expand because it's all always about profit. It's always about creating what Marx called a surplus value. And the surplus value then gets reinvested in creation of more surplus value. So uh, capital is about constant uh, expansion. And uh, what that does is to say if you grow at 3% a year forever, uh, then uh, we get to the point where the amount of expansion required is, is absolutely huge. In Marx's time, uh, there's plenty of space in the world to expand into, whereas right now we're talking about 3% compounding rate of growth on everything that's happening in China and South Asia and Latin America, and, and, and the problem arises, where are you going to expand into? Uh, and that's the bad infinity coming into being. And in volume three of Capital, Marx talks about, well, maybe the way, only way it can expand is by monetary expansion, because uh, with money, uh, there's no limit. I mean, uh, if we're talking about commodities and uh, using cement or something like that, there's a sort of physical limit, whereas with money, you can just add zeros to the, the global money supply. And if you look at what we did after 2007, 2008, uh, we added zeros to the money supply by something called quantitative easing. 
and that money then just flowed back into stock markets and then asset bubbles and property markets and one of the strange things was after the crisis in property markets in 2007-2008 we've now got a situation where in every metropolitan area of the world that I've visited there's a huge boom in construction there's a huge boom in in uh, property asset prices all of which is being fueled by the fact that money's being created and it doesn't know where to go except into uh, speculation in asset values you're trained as a geographer and for you marx's account of capitalism is fundamentally about dealing with problems of space and time and money and credit are ways that these problems are solved Explain why these two axes of space and time are so critical. Well, for instance, the, the interest rate is about discounting into the future. And uh, borrowing is about uh, foreclosing upon the future. So that credit and uh, debt, debt is a claim upon future production. Uh, which means that uh, the future is uh, foreclosed upon because we've got to pay our debts. Uh, ask any student who's heavily in debt, uh, you know, to the tune of, I say, $200,000, well, their future is foreclosed because they've got to pay off $200,000 of their uh, indebtedness. And so the foreclosure of the future uh, is something that is, I think, a terribly important aspect of what capital is about. Now, the space stuff comes in because when, as you start to expand, uh, then there's always the possibility, uh, if you can't expand in this space, you, you take your capital and you go into another space. For instance, Britain was producing a lot of surplus capital in the 19th century, and so a lot of it was flowing to North America, some of it was flowing to Latin America, some of it was flowing to South Africa, places like that. So, so there's um, a, a geographical aspect to this, that the expansion of the system is about getting what I call spatial fixes, uh, that uh, you've got a problem, you've got excess capital, what are you going to do with it? Well, you have a spatial fix, which is, means you go out and you build something some, somewhere else in the world. And if you have an unsettled uh, continent like North America in the 19th century, then, of course, there's vast amounts of places you can expand into. But now North America has been pretty much uh, covered. Uh, you know, now uh, you know, everybody's moved into China, and China's kind of pretty much covered now. So the, the problem is the, the kind of the spatial reorganization uh, is not simply about expansion, it's also about reconstruction. So we get deindustrialization in uh, the United States and Europe, uh, and then the kind of reconfiguration of uh, urban areas through urban redevelopment, so that uh, cotton mills in Massachusetts get turned into condominiums, you know, those kinds of transformations. So the geography of it is, for me, very, very important to look at, but uh, we're running out of both space and time right now, and that's one of the big problems of potential of contemporary capitalism. And in terms of the recent economic crisis in the, the U.S., in terms of the aspects, the space and time axes, you talk about the future being foreclosed upon, and that term is very much applicable when it comes to debt on homes, when they can't be repaid, homes are literally foreclosed upon. Yeah, I, uh, that's why I kind of think the term foreclosure is very interesting. I mean, it uh, forecloses in that sense. Uh, people lose their house. Uh, they 
you know, what was it, I don't know, seven million people lost their houses in the crash uh, back in 2007-2008. So their, their future was foreclosed upon, uh, but at the same time, uh, the, 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 the debt economy has not gone away. Uh, you would have thought that after 2007-2008 there would have been a pause in debt creation. But actually what you see is a huge increase in debt creation. So it seems like contemporary capitalism is in increasingly loading down more and more with debt. Uh, and uh, that is something which I think should concern all of us because how is that debt going to be repaid and, and by what means? And are we going to end up with uh, more and more money creation which then has nowhere to go except in terms of speculating in asset values which can be everybody, everything from Picassos to property and, uh, and, and then we start actually building things for people to invest in, not uh, for people to live in. I mean, this is again uh, one of the uh, most amazing things about uh, contemporary China that you'll see whole cities uh, that have been built and have not yet lived in. Uh, yet people have bought into them because uh, this is a good investment of way to invest in the future. It's precisely that issue of credit, if I read you right, that led you to borrow this phrase from Der Derrida, uh, uh, this notion of the madness of economic reason. And for me, it's a really interesting use of, of this idea of, of madness because colloquially, Madness and insanity are invoked to, to stigmatize or pathologize individuals with mental illness in a way that I think often works to legitimate the status quo when what Marx shows us and what your book shows us is that it is in fact the system that is insane. Yeah, and I think uh, the best measure of that is uh, to look at what happens in a crisis. Uh, you know, capital produces crises periodically. And one of the characteristics of a crisis is that you have surpluses of labor, unemployed, not knowing what, how to make a living. At the same time as you have surpluses of capital that don't seem to be able to find any place to go to get a, uh, an adequate rate of return. So you have these two surpluses sitting side by side in a situation where social need is chronic, where we actually need uh, to put capital and labor together to actually create things. But you can't do that because what you, what, what you want to create is not profitable. And if it's not profitable, then capital doesn't do it. It sort of goes on strike. And so we end up with surplus capital and surplus labor side by side. And that seems to me to be the height of irrationality. And yet we're taught that uh, the capitalist economic system is highly rational. Uh, but it's not. It actually produces these incredible irrationalities. Before we get any further, I want to ask you to situate Marx a bit in his historical context. You, you recently had a debate in the electronic pages of Jacobin with William Clare Roberts, the author of Marx's Inferno, which reads volume one of Capital as modeling the structure of Dante's Inferno. And I don't want to get too much into that debate, but instead ask you about something that you agree with Roberts on, which is how to place Marx, how to situate Marx in this historical context of his socialist contemporaries. And you write that he that Marx broke with moralist socialists like Proudhon, Fourier, Saint-Simon and Robert Owen. Who were these socialists? And why and how did Marx part from them? 
In the early stages of uh, capitalist development, particularly in the industrial form, uh, there, there were obvious uh, problems of uh, you know, conditions of labor in the mines and in the factories and all the rest of it, so that uh, uh, reasonable people, and that would include uh, you know, professionals and the bourgeois population and so on, started to look at this with a certain amount of horror. Uh, that horror was registered, for instance, by the romantic poets, kind of saying, you know, this is, this is horrendous what's going on in terms of uh, industrialization. And, and so one of the, the things that came out of this was a, a sort of moral repugnance uh, against uh, industrialism. And many of the early socialists were, were moralists. Uh, in, 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 in the good sense of that term and, and, and expressed their outrage and basically said, look, we could construct an alternative kind of society, one which is based on communal well-being, one which is based on social solidarities and, and issues of that kind. But Marx looked at the situation and said, well, actually, the problem with capital is not that. The problem with capital is that it's almost like it's amoral. It doesn't, it doesn't have a morality, and that to try to confront it with moral reason uh, is never going to get very far because the system, as it were, is self-generating and self-reproducing, and we've got to deal with that self-reproduction of the system. So Marx took a kind of a what he considered to be a much more scientific view of what capital was about, and, and then tried to sort of say, so now we need to actually replace the whole system. So it's not a matter of cleaning up uh, the factories and uh, that kind of thing. We've got to deal with the way in which capital uh, in, in its process does engage in this mad uh, process that, uh, that Marx describes so effectively. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but how do you, if you have, how do you think the film Young Karl Marx is it an accurate representation? <laughs> I've seen I've seen the film and the and and the play, you know, and, and of course Marx was a character of his time, and 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 I think uh, it's interesting to look at him from that perspective. But the thing that I want to do is to say, look, Marx actually had a theory of about of capital, and 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 capital is still with us. We're still in a society which is driven by capital accumulation, and what Marx did was to abstract from the particularities of his time and to talk about the dynamics of capital accumulation and to point out its contradictory character, to point out how it actually in its, in its driving force is, is actually imprisoning all of us in, in, in the debt. For example, you know, we like to think we have freedom of choice. But right now, uh, the indebtedness in the United States or the indebtedness in the global economy is so huge that we don't have any freedom of choice. We've actually uh, foreclosed upon that by, by uh, actually paying for last year's sins with this year's debts, and that's, that's our problem. So what Marx did, it seems to me, was to sort of say, well, this is beyond simply moral protest. This is about talking about a systematic... Uh, uh, process which we need to grapple with and understand its dynamics because otherwise what we find is that people come along and they, they, they try to create some sort of moral reform and the moral reform that gets co-opted by capital. And, and it's really fantastic, actually, over the last few years. We see something like the Internet, which everybody thought of initially as a great liberatory technology and a great liberatory force that would allow for a great deal of human freedom. And now look what's happened to it. 
It's actually sort of dominated by a few, few monopoly that do all kinds of things like collect our data and then give it to all kinds of seedy characters who start using it for political purposes. So something that started out as a real liberatory kind of technology suddenly turns into a vehicle of repression and oppression. And then if you ask the question, how did that happen? You either say, well, it's because some evil people out there who did it, or well, with Marx, you say, well, that's the systematic character of capital, always to do that. So there's no such thing as a good moral idea that capital can't co-opt and turn into something that's horrendous. That is almost every utopian schema that's come across the horizon over the last you know, 50, 100 years has been turned into a dystopia. Uh, by the capitalist dynamic. And that's what Marx is pointing to and say, look, you've got to grapple with that process. And if you don't grapple with that process, you're not going to actually get anywhere in terms of creating an alternative world which is really emancipatory and is about the delivery of human freedom to everybody. I'd like to ask you more about that contradictory process. M- Marx was, of course, a, obviously a, a fierce critic of capitalism, but he was also an admirer of its powers of, of creative destruction. He, he thought, for example, that capitalism was a great improvement in many ways upon feudalism. I, I wonder, how do you think we should think of these destructive powers today? So, so much of what capitalism destroys is quite obvious to my listeners, whether we're talking about the environment uh, or entire communities throughout the American Rust Belt where the opioid crisis is rushing in to fill a void that was once filled by unionized manufacturing jobs. But, but on the other hand, how do we need to take account of, of rising incomes in places like China and India and this massive process of infrastructure construction that's going on in, in countries like those? How do you approach these contradictory processes? I think what, one of the things that Marx, you're right to, to, to mention this because uh, Marx is not just simply a critic of capitalism. He's uh, also, I think, uh, uh, a fan of some of the things that capitalism builds. And that's, if you like, the biggest contradiction of all for Marx is the fact that what capital has done is to build the capacity uh, technologically and organizationally to actually create a far, far better world but it does it through social relations which are about relations of domination rather than of emancipation. And that is, the, if you like, the huge central contradiction. And Marx keeps saying, why don't we use all of this you know, technological and organizational capacity uh, to create a world which is liberatory and emancipatory rather than one which is about domination? Now, uh, of course, one of the things that happens is that certain people benefit greatly from capital accumulation. Some people get very, very rich. But for every person who gets very, very rich, there are a dozen people who get poorer and poorer and poorer. And that is, again, the sort of central dilemma that Marx is really uh, having to confront. And we have to confront, too. A related contradiction is... How should Marxists think about the current debate over globalization in the U.S., which has gotten more muddled and confusing, I think, than at least ever before in my lifetime? On the left, there seems to be very little support for the tariffs that Trump has put in place. But how do you think the left should look at this current debate and Trump's protectionism in a way that differs from the mainstream economist finger wagging? 
I think the 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 left uh, a certain you know, Marx Marx actually approved of globalization um, in the Communist Manifesto. There's a wonderful passage that talks about it uh, and sees it as potentially liberatory and emancipatory uh, in, in 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 its possibilities. But again. Uh, the question is, why is it that these emancipatory possibilities are not taken up, and why is it that they're used uh, as uh, for, as means of domination of one class by another class? Yes, it's true that uh, some people in the world have improved their incomes, but the last Oxfam report, as I recall, said eight people actually, eight families uh, have enough wealth to, to equivalent of about 50% of the world's population. So the, the, the increasing inequalities uh, are, are, are very much uh, in, in, in evidence. And those increasing inequalities are not just simply about people having individual wealth and power, they have a great deal of social wealth and power, so that uh, we look at uh, you know, so some of the characters who are controlling political processes. We look at the media, the way the media is dominated by monopoly power. We look at monopoly power on the internet. We're looking at monopoly power all over the place. And, and again, Marx is kind of saying we have to do something about that, uh, that, that, that failure. But in doing so, we don't get nostalgic and say we all want to go back to feudalism. Or we all want to go live on the land or something of that kind. We've got to think about a progressive future, uh, which is utilizing all of the technologies we have available, but for utilizing them for a social purpose rather than utilizing them for a purpose of uh, individual wealth and power increasing in, a f in fewer and fewer hands. Which is the very same sort of reason that Marx broke with his romantic socialist contemporaries. In terms of, of what liberal economic theories, what mainstream economists miss about all of this, you cite a really great passage from Marx. Every reason which they, they being the economists, put forward against crisis is an exercised contradiction and therefore a real contradiction which can cause crises. The desire to convince oneself of the non-existence of contradictions is, at the same time, the expression of a pious wish that the contradictions, which are really present, should not exist. What, what is it that mainstream economics sets out to do, and what do they elide or hide in the process? They, they, they hate contradictions. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't fit with the, their, their, their world view. Uh, the, the, uh, the economists love to f confront what they call problems, and problems have solutions. Uh, contradictions don't. They, they exist uh, with you all the time, and that therefore you therefore have to manage them, and they get out of hand. They get heightened into what Marx called absolute contradictions. I mean, how do economists deal with the fact that in the crisis of the 1930s or the 1970s or more recently, surplus capital and surplus labor sit side by side and nobody seems to have a clue as to how to put them back together so that they can work for socially productive purposes? I mean, uh, how, do, how do economists explain a situation arising of that sort? Uh, well, Keynes tried in his way to do something which came a little bit close to some of the things that Marx uh, uh, sets up. But by and large, uh, you know, economists have no idea how, how to, to deal with uh, contradictions of this sort. 
Whereas Marx is kind of saying that it's in the nature of capital accumulation that it internalizes this contradiction. And this contradiction then produces these uh, crises periodically, which are very difficult to live through and which uh, actually claim lives and create misery of the sort you've mentioned already through the deindustrialization of the American Midwest or uh, you know, the deindustrialization that's occurred in Britain. So those sorts of uh, phenomena have to be, te- have to be sort of uh, 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 addressed and uh, uh, economics doesn't really have a very good way of uh, thinking about them because they're into something which m- what might be called a, an efficient market hypothesis, for example, in which uh, the market is supposed to work in such a way as to give you rational outcomes when plainly it doesn't. In, in terms of that, that contradiction, which we've been discussing, which you describe in your book as surplus capital and surplus plus labor existing side by side with seemingly no way to put them back together, after the recent crisis, how were those two things, surplus capital and surplus labor, reacquainted? And is the way that they've been rejoined, has it resulted in a new form of capitalism distinct from that which prevailed before the crisis? In, in other words, are we still living under neoliberalism or has something new taken root? I think the response to the the crisis of 2007-2008 was to, in in most of the world, not in China, and I accept China out of this, but most of the world doubled down into a neoliberal austerity kind of politics, which uh, made things worse, in my view, rather than making some sort of partial solution possible. So that uh, actually since then, now since then, uh, of course, we've had several kinds of cuts at trying to get out of the crisis. It hasn't worked very well. I mean, slowly, 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 uh, unemployment has come down in the United States. But of course, it's gone shooting up in Brazil and Argentina and places like that. So, And wages are lagging. Wage growth is pretty slow. Yeah, wages haven't, haven't, haven't gone anywhere. Um, so, but the, then you look at what the Trump administration has just has just been doing. First off, it's uh, uh, followed some very very neoliberal policies. I mean, the, the budget that they passed back in last December is a pure neoliberal document. Uh, it, it basically benefits the bondholders and the capital owners, and and everybody else is is sort of uh, pushed uh, to one side. So, this is a kind of pure neoliberal uh, thing. And the other thing that's happened is that deregulation, which is of course one of the big things that neoliberals like, uh, is uh, uh, the Trump administration has doubled down on on deregulation of the environment and and, and uh, labor laws and, 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 and everything else. So that actually there's been, uh, as it were, a doubling down on the neoliberal solutions. The problem being that the neoliberal argument, which had a lot of legitimacy, say, in the 1980s and 1990s as being liberatory in some way, nobody believes that anymore. Everybody realizes it's a con job in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Um, so the legitimacy of it is gone. Now, what we're beginning to see, however, is the possibility of emergence of this kind of ec- ethno-nationalist uh, protectionism autarky, which is a different model of the economy. And that doesn't sit very well with the neoliberal uh, 
uh, ideals which uh, were promoted uh, earlier. So we could be headed into something which is much less uh, uh, pleasant even than neoliberalism, which is uh, the division of the world into uh, warring and uh, protectionist factions who are fighting each other over trade and all the rest of it. And I think that the roots of that are also, I, th I think, buried in two propositions which are very strong politically right now. Uh, the argument of somebody like Bannon is that we need to protect the working people of America from competition in the job market by limiting immigration. So we've got an anti-immigrant uh, side to this, which is really very, very strong, uh, and which uh, the sort of cosmopolitan side of uh, uh, the economists think is disastrous. But that's the first argument. I mean, that's got a lot of purchase right now amongst uh, populations who've been hurt uh, in the labor market. So instead of blaming capital, you blame the immigrants. Uh, so that's a, the first thing. The second thing is to say, well, we can also protect uh, that population uh, and get support from that population by you know, putting up tariff barriers and saying blaming the Chinese uh, and Chinese competition and all the rest of it. So in effect, you've got a right-wing uh, kind of politics which is gathering a great deal of support amongst working people who've been left behind uh, by being anti-immigrant and uh, anti-offshoring uh, of uh, jobs. Now, the fact is that actually the biggest problem of jobs is not offshoring, it's technological change. About 60 or 70 percent of the unemployment which occurred after, you know, during the 19, well, from the 1980s onwards, uh, much of the unemployment was due to technological change. Only about, you know, 15, maybe 20 or 30 percent of it was due to uh, offshoring. Uh, to China and, 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 and the like. But the right wing now has a politics. And if you look at what's happening, that politics is not only going on in the United States, you also find it going on in Hungary, you'll find it going on in India, you'll find it going on uh, to some degree in uh, Russia. Uh, so you're beginning to get this kind of ethno-nationalist authoritarian uh, uh, kind of uh, politics which is, which is beginning to break the capitalist world up into warring factions. And we know what happened with that sort of thing in the 1930s. So this is something that I think we should all be very concerned about. It is no answer to the capital dilemma. It is an answer to the neoliberal uh, answer. And to the degree that ethno-nationalism will conquer neoliberalism, I think we'll be in for an even uglier kind of world uh, than the one we've already been in. These contradictions that you're describing are incredibly powerful ones within the the governing conservative coalition in the US and they're they're quite clearly manifested right now but i think it's a mistake when people see them as as brand new i think they've been latent for quite a long time oh yeah i i i mean uh uh, for instance, the anti-immigrant fervor, uh, I was reminded of that because in Britain back at the end of the 1960s, there was this speech by Enoch Powell that talked about rivers of blood if we continue to this immigration policy. So the anti-immigrant fervor has been around for a long time, but I think that it managed uh, during the 1980s and 1990s to sort of uh, be kept under wraps because there was enough dynamism in the, in the global capitalist economy for people to say, no, look, this uh, open 
uh, far open trade and a free trade uh, regime, uh, open, not open borders, but, uh, you know, reasonably benign immigration policies. This is all working for us, and it was in the 1990s, but since the 1990s, it's gone very much in the other direction, and I think that we're now seeing the ascendancy of that, uh, of, of, of that kind of politics. You just mentioned the huge power of, of automation in terms of rendering jobs that, that humans once did into ones that, that machines do. And there's a lot of debate over that on, on the left. What does Marx say about automation? And what do you make of this larger automation debate on the left? Is, is the end of, of work, as some say, really, really near? Or... Are, are such predictions more a sort of technology fetishism given the, the mass proletarianization of, of huge swaths of the globe in recent decades? Well, look, uh, you know, I, I came to the United States in 1969 and I went to the city of Baltimore and there was a huge uh, iron and steel works in Baltimore that employed around 37,000 people. Uh, by the time I get to the 1990, uh, the steelworks is still producing the same amount of steel, but it's now employing about 5,000 people. Uh, and now, of course, the steelworks is in, pretty much entirely gone. Um, the, 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 the point about this is that in the manufacturing sector and in industry, uh, automation and the like uh, actually drove out jobs wholesale all over the place very, very fast. And the left spent a lot of time trying to defend those jobs and, and kind of afford a rearguard action against uh, automation and, uh, and, and saying loss of jobs is, is horrible. I think that was a wrong strategy, and it was wrong for a couple of reasons. One was the automation was coming anyway, and uh, you were going to lose. Uh, secondly, I, I don't see why on the left we should be absolutely, you know, opposed to automation. I think it's a good idea. And I, now we're about to see the same thing going on in the service sector with artificial intelligence. Uh, and I think the left is in danger of, of, of running again you know, against artificial intelligence. I think that Marx's position, uh, insofar as he had one about this sort of thing, would be uh, that we should make use of, of as much of this artificial intelligence and automation and so on as we possibly can, but that we should do it in such a way as that we would lighten the load of labor. And one of the big questions Marx asks in Capital, Volume 1, is John Stuart Mill wrote a piece where he kind of said, you know, we've got all these new technologies, but it seems that light, the, the labor, is, uh, labor is not benefiting from it. Why not? And Marx says, well, of course, Labour's not benefited from it, from, so, because the purpose of this, uh, these technological changes is not to lighten the load of Labour, but it's to improve the productivity of Labour so that you produce more capital. And that until that's stopped, then we're going to find that artificial intelligence and automation and so on are going to be used in a way which is antagonistic uh, to, to the well-being of uh, the, the, the workforce. What we have to do is to turn that around. So the left should be working on a politics in which we say, look, we welcome artificial intelligence. We work, welcome robotization and automation. We welcome these things. But one of the things this should do is to give us much more free time. And one of the big things that Marx actually does suggest is that free time 
is probably one of the most emancipatory things we can have. And he, he has a nice little phrase. He said, the realm of uh, freedom begins when the realm of necessity is left behind. And imagine a world in which necessities could be taken care of, maybe with one or two days a week working, and the rest of the time is free time. And then we could do what we like. Now, the interesting thing here is we've got all of these labor-saving innovations, and it's not only in, 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 in the labor process, it's also in the household. We've got all of these time-saving devices in the household. But if you ask people, do you have more free time than you once had, the answer is, no, I have less free time. And, and actually, if you say, look, we've got to organize all of this so that, that we actually have as much free time as possible where we could do what on earth we like so that, you know, if it's Wednesday at 5 o'clock, you can go do whatever you want. And, and, and this, is a, this is the kind of imagination of a society that Marx has in mind that kind of says, we use these things. And, you know, and I have a couple of people sitting around here and they're smiling and laughing about this and thinking, what a great idea this is. And it's an obvious idea. <laughs> you know, it's an obvious idea. And Marx is kind of saying, what's stopping us? Well, what's stopping us is because all of this stuff is being actually utilized, what? To actually prop up profits of Google and Amazon and everything else, and that is the problem. And until we deal with the social relations and the class relations behind all of this, we're not going to be able to use all of these, these fantastic devices and fantastic opportunities in ways which are actually the benefit of everybody. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you, from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change, to black athletes in revolt, to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And Socialism 2018 will feature leaders of the teachers' strikes that have swept through the so-called red states this spring. Teachers from West Virginia to Puerto Rico to Arizona will speak on two panels in Friday night's main plenary. Don't miss this opportunity to learn about the power of organized workers from rank-and-file leaders across the country. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Worker, and by Jacobin. And it will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current teachers' rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great place to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. What do you think of universal basic income schemes? Many in Silicon Valley certainly seem to think that automation is going to pose a problem for them in terms of, I think, both consumer demand and political unrest. 
but just think what, a kind of, what kind of future they're suggesting in Silicon Valley. What they want is they want a universal basic income so people have enough money to sort of pay for Netflix so they can sit on a couch <laughs> and binge watch on Netflix all day long and, and, and that's it. I mean, what kind of world is that? Uh, I mean, that, talk about a dystopia. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the progressive, so-called progressive folk in Silicon Valley want a universal basic income. And this fits also with some of the people on the left who also are talking about universal basic income. I, I actually think that's not the issue. I mean, the issue is, to me, universal basic income is one thing. The big problem is, uh, you know, Silicon Valley and, and, and those, those people who are kind of, uh, you know, sort of monopolizing uh, means of communication and means of, uh, you know, entertainment and, and, and all the rest of it. So I, I, I really think there's a, the, 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 the problem doesn't lie there. And uh, universal basic income at some point, something like that might be uh, on the agenda. But I don't put it at the top of my political priorities as somehow or other this is the thing that's really going to save us all. In fact, I think there are many aspects of it that are, have highly negative possibilities, as the Silicon Valley model of it uh, suggests. I want to ask you about what what's arguably an the ultimate contradiction of capitalism, which is climate change and global warming. And I, I wonder if you think that climate change highlights clear limits to the permanent expansion required by capitalism or whether it will be possible that capitalism might be able to weather the climate crisis intact to everyone else's detriment, of course. Yeah, that's what worries me. I mean, I think actually capital could weather the, the climate change crisis. I mean, in, in fact, uh, the, when you, you look at some of the costs which are associated with the sort of climate disasters that are occurring, then of course, uh, capital can turn this into uh, what we call disaster. What Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism. Uh, you know that uh, you get a disaster, well, you have to rebuild. That gives lots of possible you know, opportunities for capital to recuperate uh, profitably uh, from uh, from climate disasters. So, I, my 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 problem here is that 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 capital could, in fact, weather climate change disasters uh, and and do it in a way which would be profitable to itself, but would be deleterious to the rest of us, as we have to deal with uh, the, the kinds of uh, issues that uh, that, are, that are posed. And it's not just simply climate change; it would it, be things like uh, species extinction, uh, the 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 the. the, the quantity of plastic circulating in the oceans and 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 uh, habitat de de degeneration and 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 all the rest of it so i think that you know from a from from the standpoint of, a, of humanity or human beings i think that uh, we will not come out of this very well at all and in fact uh, it will come out as a pretty miserable thing but the capital is different see capital can come out of these things uh, and as long as it's profitable uh, they'll do it on that bleak note, I think it's a good time to shift gears and talk about resistance. <laughs> um, you write that that production and consumption are both core facets of capitalism and that, quote, social and political struggles against the power of capital within the totality of capital circulation take different forms and call for different kinds of strategic alliances if they are to succeed. I want to ask you to explain what, what you mean here and how we should think about the relationship between, say, 
labor struggles on the one hand and struggles against the state, against mass incarceration, against landlord evictions or predatory lending on the other. One of the virtues, I think, of uh, looking at uh, uh, capital as a totality and thinking of uh, all of the aspects of uh, the capital circulation process is that you start to identify uh, different arenas of, uh, of struggle. Uh, for example, we've just talked about one, which is the environmental question. Marx talks about the metabolic relation to nature and some of the things that can really go wrong in terms of uh, that metabolic relation. And therefore, struggles over uh, the relation to nature are become politically very significant. Now, what we see in the world right now is a lot of people who are, you know, who are concerned about the environmental issue will say, well, we can deal with this without actually having to confront uh, capital accumulation. Uh, and so there is a wing even of capitalists who say, well, you know, environmental technologies uh, are you know, coming on board, renewable energy is, is, is becoming more uh, feasible, so that we can actually solve the problems without, uh, without actually uh, dealing with capital. Um, now, I object to that because I think there are limited possibilities of doing that. I think that actually at a certain point we're going to have to deal with this dynamic of capital accumulation, which is about 3% growth forever, uh, as, a, as a clear environmental issue. In other words, I don't think there's going to be a solution to the environmental issue uh, without actually confronting capital accumulation and the, that, that, that dynamic. So just as on that metabolic relation to nature, I think there's something very, very important. Now, there are other aspects too. Uh, capital has long been about the production of new wants, needs, and desires, and it's been about the production of consumerism. And I think one of the things that uh, I, I just come back from China, I noticed in just the three or four years I've been going to China, uh, the immense increase in consumerism in China. And, and this is what uh, the World Bank and uh, IMF was advising the Chinese to do, you know, 20, 15 years ago, saying, you know, you've got to cultivate your internal market because you're saving too much and you're not consuming enough. And so now uh, the Chinese have obliged by um, beginning to set up a real consumer society and... Uh, but that means that people's wants, needs, and desires are being transformed so that, uh, say, 20 years ago in China, your want, need, and desire would be you needed a, a bicycle. Uh, now you need an automobile. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, so, so the, the production of new wants, needs, and desires is, uh, is something that is very much in the field of capitalist endeavor. And there are various ways in which that is done. I mean, obviously, the, the, the madmen of advertising have their role to play. But, but actually, even more important, I think, is the invention of whole new lifestyles. Uh, for instance, one of the things I've often pointed out is that one of the ways in which capital got out of its dilemmas in 1945 in the United States was through the suburbanization of the United States, which is the creation of a whole new lifestyle. And in fact, what we find is lifestyle creation is not a choice. I mean, 
uh, you know, we all have cell phones around this table. We, you know, I go everywhere, everybody has a cell phone. This is not a sort of choice that I decided it was a good idea to have a cell phone. I had to have a cell phone. And so there's a whole lifestyle which is now, and you know, and, you're, you're, and, it, and it's really fantastic going down the street. Everybody's not looking about what's going on around them. They've got their eyes <laughs> on their cell phones. So this is the creation of, an, of, a, of a lifestyle. You know, and 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 that lifestyle is not something that I can individually choose to be in or out. I mean, you just don't have any choice. I have to have a, a cell phone, even though I don't know how the damn thing works, and I have all kinds of problems with it. And, <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and I I can't turn it off when I'm going to a concert and so. But you know, all those, those sorts of things. But I think that that. The, 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 the point here is that it's not as if that somehow or other back in time whenever somebody was desiring and wanting and needing a cell phone. Uh, it came into being for a very particular kind of reason and capital found a way of, uh, of organizing uh, a lifestyle around it. And, and so now we're locked into that lifestyle and, and, and that's it. I mean, and, and I jokingly refer back to the suburbanization process, you know, well, what do you need in the suburbs? You need a lawnmower. You know, well, you know, if you were smart in 1945, you would have gone into the production of lawnmowers because everybody's going to have to have a lawnmower on Sundays to go out there and go chunk, chunk, chunk around and lawn, cut, the, cut their grass. So, so the, point, the point here is that, that, that uh, did people have a choice uh, of their lifestyle and in what sense do we have? Now, there are revolts against, it seems to me, certain things that are, that are happening. We're getting uh, what I would call mass alienation uh, around the, some of the lifestyle things that are emerging and people sort of beginning to say, look, uh, we want to do something different. And I, I find little communities all around the place in urban areas and actually in rural areas too where people are trying to actually set up a different alternative lifestyle which is not based on, on, on some of these, uh, these, these particular features and is attempting to create an alternative kind of set of social relations. The ones that interest me most are those which actually use the new technologies like cell phones and internet and all this kind of stuff to actually create an alternative lifestyle which is different kinds of forms of social relations and those which are characteristic of the corporation and which are characteristic of hierarchical uh, structures of, uh, of, uh, of power that we encounter in our daily lives. So my, my, my point here is that I can go around that whole uh, arena of what uh, capital accumulation is about and sort of pick on something like the production of new wants, needs and desires and, and talk about the struggles that go on around uh, lifestyle choices and, uh, and, and, and the like uh, and, 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 and what those struggles are about. Now to struggle over a lifestyle is rather different than struggling over wages uh, or conditions of labor in a factory. And uh, there is, however, from the standpoint of the totality I'm talking about, there is a relationship between these different struggles. And one of the things that I'd be very interested to do is to sort of start to get people to see how struggles over the environment, struggles over the production of new wants, needs, and desires, and consumerism are related to the forms of production which are organizing, how uh, conditions uh, in uh, uh, the housing market are, are, are related. Uh, so you try to put all of these things together and start to get a picture 
of the totality of what a capitalist society is about and the different kinds of dissatisfactions and alienations that exist in different components of this whole kind of process of circulation of capital, which Marx identifies. It seems to me that suburbanization is a really good case in terms of elucidating the ways that struggles around production and consumption can be linked because the processes of of dispossession and exploitation are linked going back to the period after World War Two, when you have massive suburbanization in the U.S., it happens in an incredibly uneven way, thanks to the way that racism works in American capitalism. You have housing segregation, you have job market segmentation, and within that segmented job market, you have basically whites-only building trades workers receiving the economic benefit of building those those houses. How do you see struggles, especially given the current rise of, of ethno-nationalism and the long-standing problem for decades of mass incarceration in the U.S., the relationship between struggles against racism and these struggles over production and consumption that, that we've discussed? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the, depending upon where you are in the world, these, these questions are, are foundational and, and, and fundamental. And obviously, here in the United States, this is a very, very, very big issue. Uh, you don't hit the same problem if you're sort of uh, looking at what's happening in China. But here, uh, the, the, the forms that uh, social relations take are always cut across by, by questions of gender, race, uh, religion, and, uh, ethno, ethnicity, and, 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 and the like. Now, I'm not going to argue, as some people do, that capital creates all of those problems. I think those problems are there and have been there for a very, very long time. But one of the things that capital does is to make use of those problems. I mean, uh, the, the way the housing market was manipulated in this country uh, during the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and then through, right through to today uh, has been racialized uh, from, from the very get-go. And, and uh, therefore, you cannot uh, deal with the question of uh, the production of lifestyle or the production of uh, wants, needs, and desires without actually then encompassing the whole kind of question of what, what happens in, in ra- racialized housing markets and how the race question then gets utilized uh, in, various, uh, in various ways. Uh, for instance, when I first moved uh, to live in Baltimore, uh, I did a lot of studies, and one of the things that was going on was blockbusting, uh, which was the use of, uh, of uh, by by the real estate uh, industry of uh, racial disparities in order to sort of force white flight and uh, capitalize on, on on high turnover in the in the housing market as a, w- a way of, uh, of, of of gaining a great deal of economic uh, advantage. So these issues uh, are, are there, and, and I think that uh, the gender, gender questions which arise around questions of social reproduction uh, are, are, are also paramount uh, in, in a capitalist society, and they, they're, they're, they're paramount no matter where you are. Uh, and, and so this is a, these, these issues are, are, are embedded uh, in relationship to what the dynamics of capital accumulation are about. Now, when I'm talking about this, I often get into trouble because it makes it seem as if somehow or other capital accumulation is more important than these other aspects. The answer is to that is that no, that's not the case. Uh, 
But I think that one of the things that uh, anti-racist struggles have to, uh, have to deal with is the way in which the dynamics of capital ac accumulation interfere with uh, anti-racist politics and, and, and what that, you know, exactly what the relationship is uh, between this uh, accumulation process and, and the perpetuation of racial distinctions and racial markers and actually, the, some, in some instances, even the creation of new forms of uh, distinctions in, 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 say, housing markets and, 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 and the like. So to me, um, you know, these, you know there's a, there is a very much broader question of what's happening in particular societies as a whole. Uh, here in the United States, we have a whole set of uh, these, these kinds of questions which are, which are paramount. Uh, but uh, again, can they be handled without at some point or other dealing with the way in which capital accumulation and the capital dynamic uh, is actually uh, fostering and uh, confusing and uh, perpetuating some of these distinctions? And I think the answer to that for me is no. That's, I don't think that's, that's, uh, that's possible. And in exactly the same way that not every anti-racist is anti-capitalist, at a certain point I think anti-racists have to be also anti-capitalist if you're going to get to the real root of, uh, of a lot of the problems. Which uh, is, is precisely what a lengthy interview I did with uh, Barbara and Karen Fields was, was about in, in, uh, in great part. You're well known, obviously, for your scholarly work, but you're perhaps even better known as a teacher of Marx. Your, your lectures on Capital have been viewed on YouTube a, a huge number of times. And I want to close by asking why you think it's important for leftists outside of the academy to engage with Marx's work and engage with it beyond the Communist Manifesto. And, and why do you think so many, as all of the people who are watching your videos show— clearly feel that it is so important that they do so. When you're involved in political action and activism, uh, you usually got some very specific target that you're involved with. You know, let's say uh, lead paint poisoning in the inner city or something of that kind. And you're organizing around what to do about the fact that uh, you know, 10 or 20% of the kids in the inner city of Baltimore suffer from lead paint poisoning or something of that kind, and you're involved in a legal battle, and you're involved in fighting uh, uh, with uh, landlord lobbies and with uh, all kinds of uh, opponents. Um, so, you know, you, you, most people I know who are involved in activist forms of that kind are, are so consumed with the details of what it is they're doing and how they're doing it and the struggles that they're involved in that they, they very often forget where they are in the overall picture of, uh, uh, of the struggles in general going on in a city, let alone going on in the world. Uh, yet, at the same time, it very often you find that people need sustenance from outside. That, that lead paint thing is kind of much easier to handle if uh, you've got uh, all of the people who are involved in, say, 
discrimination in the educational system who see that having kids in schools uh, and those kids have some problems with lead paint uh, poisoning. You know, the, in other words, you start to build alliances. And the more alliances you can build, uh, the more powerful you actually find uh, your movement could be. And one of the things that I would try to do is, is, is not to lecture people on what they should think or anything like that, but to try to create a framework of thinking so that people can more easily see where they are in the whole totality of complicated relationships that make up contemporary society and can start to think about asking people in, in alliances around uh, the particular issues they're concerned with and at the same time mobilize their own powers in terms of their own particular constituency to help other people in their alliances. So I'm into building alliances. And in order to build alliances, I think you have to have some sort of picture of, of the, the totality of what uh, a capitalist society is about. And to the degree that you can get some of that from studying a bit of Marx and, and, and getting some you know, presentations on Marx of the sort that I tried to to lay out in, on, on the website. To that degree, I think that, 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 that it's, it's helpful uh, to have uh, you know, this, this, this background so that you know where you, where you are in, 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 in the totality of struggles going on around you. And, and to me, that is just one of the things that I would want to do. And, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, the, the website with with its you know, lectures on Marx and on other issues, has been an extremely popular uh, website. And, and I, I, what's interesting about it is that I, I find people have used it in China, people have used it in, in uh, uh, you know, Africa. I mean, it's, 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 it's all over the world. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and shocked, actually. <laughs> When I go around and I and I find uh, that uh, actually people are using it in Moscow, and and uh, you, kind of, you kind of go well, you know, obviously there's a need out there for this sort of this sort of way of thinking, and I I think that uh, the more of us who can do some more work on the uh, from the educational standpoint, uh, the better it will be. David Harvey, thank you so very much. Well, thank you. It's been great uh, to talk with you. David Harvey is a professor of anthropology at the City University of New York Graduate School and the author of Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason from Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after thanking David Harvey for paying such close attention, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review there. Those reviews help introduce those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, total strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is very much appreciated. And last but by no means least, please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Mm-hmm.